Cooey, darling, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I am beyond delighted to introduce you to some people who embody what it means to be absolute champions. These are individuals who have inspired, stood up for change and shined bright. From superstar highs to the awkward teenage years, come with me on a journey of discovery to find out what makes these people my heroes and I guarantee they will be yours too. Today's total legend is someone I can only describe as my actual hero and a radical force of nature. People love the fact that I'm a shaven-headed, skinny little black girl raging around the stage, screaming her head off into a microphone. She had such a massive impact on my teenage years, both creatively and personally. And yes, I did have a poster of her on my bedroom wall. I'd never heard the word gay until I was about 15. In my community, Gay people didn't even exist. She is someone who has refused to play the game, which is a superpower that, when used effectively, is unstoppable and damn right groundbreaking. It was about not falling into the trap of feeling like we had to do what everybody else is doing in order to get noticed. Without further ado, I give you the one, the only, the iconic skin! I want to start by thanking you as a little weird queer kid from Bristol that often felt very invisible. You were one of the people alongside Bjork and Boy George that was on my wall (laughs) as a teenager and that gave me complete power. That makes me very happy. I'm very proud, especially to be on with two other legendary people. I thought, oh, that's nice. Thank you. For me growing up, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I really struggled with representation, with seeing people that... I wanted to be. You know, Boy George was the closest to it. Did you struggle with that growing up? I guess I just got used to not seeing myself in the way that I wanted to see myself. I mean, I guess like you, you know, we all feel like the odd ones out. We all feel a bit like, why does everyone think all this stuff is normal and all this stuff is just how everyone's supposed to be? I always remember feeling quite weird, like I wasn't into boys in the way that Everybody else in my school was into boys. And I was just thinking, this cannot be it. So for me, it wasn't so much about representation because I didn't recognise anything. I didn't think anything was what I wanted to be. It was more about, you know what, I'm just going to go and do my own thing. Oh my God, I completely relate to that. I don't know about you, but a lot of dealing with that made me creative made my imagination thrive because I looked inwards because I was so disillusioned with what was happening outside my front door. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of feeling like the invisible kid? Absolutely. I felt completely invisible. I felt like I'd be standing there and adults would just talk over my head. I had three very beautiful brothers and and I was a girl and I was a bit of an ugly duckling and um, I just was trying to get myself noticed and it didn't work. And I didn't really get myself noticed until I left and just did my own thing. And that's when I started feeling much more free. And I think when you grow up in a small town like Brixton, you feel quite, even though it's in London, you know, you grow up in your community and you feel like, unless I leave it, everyone's always just going to see me as Mrs. Dyer's daughter, who's a bit non-existent. So what, because that leap, that first initial leap, I mean, I I know when I ran away to Australia to become a go-go boy. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Obviously. I just remembered that I was so terrified of what could be, but I knew that I had to do it. So how did you navigate that fear? For me, it was education. I recognised at 13, the only way I was going to get to do what I wanted to do was education because it was free. Because I was raised in a very, very poor family, four kids in one room kind of thing. And 
I was just like, well, how am I going to do all this? You know, I can't just like run away. I've got to have a plan. And I remember thinking at 13, it hit me that if I don't do this stuff, nothing is going to happen in my life. And so that was the age where I just kind of took control. And also the age I started having fun. I was raised in this very strict Christian background. I had to go to church every Sunday. And at 14, I just stood up and said to my mum, I'm not going to church today. I looked at her straight in the eye and I was just going to like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble now. But the fear of not becoming yourself is greater than the fear of the repercussions of trying. Oh, so true. So true. It's like, I can either just be scared my whole life of all of these things, or I can do it anyway and conquer the fear. Yeah, I agree. And to really, really grasp your own identity and grab it, for me, by the balls and really own it, it's hard enough, right? But for you, you're queer, you're black, you're a woman, you want to be a (laughs) rock singer. There's quite a few bumps in the road there. The weird thing was that I'd never heard the word gay until I was about 15. In my community, gay people didn't even exist because this was before social media. This is before you saw lots of gay people on TV and blah, blah, blah. You saw the good character, but you didn't really put two and two together. And I remember having to do Bible study or something that was like, you know, man shall not lay with man. And I was like, well, who's going to be doing that then? I mean, that's weird. I mean, And then the next one was like, you know, man shall not lay with animals. I'm like, They're just making it up now. <laughs> and it wasn't until I left and started having crushes on girls. For me, it was all about leaving Brixton and going to study up north. And, and I'd had an abusive boyfriend who was double my age. I was 16, he was like 29. I didn't want to be in that relationship or whatever. It was just kind of forced on me because he was a good Christian boy. And I think it's just when you see your life before you and you're just like, I can't, that's not the life I'm going to have. I'm not going to be someone's wife with 15 kids by the time I get to 35, you know? So I felt like at that point you were claiming your power, your own power. Yeah. And I feel like that's something you've not only held on to, but it's been such, it's just been so obvious in everything you do in your choices and your work. How hard has that been to keep hold of the power? I mean, it's just remembering to be authentic. I kind of feel that, number one, it's such a struggle to get there. Like, it took me from the age of 16 to 26 before I got into a rock band and got signed and became a musician full-time. And when it takes that long, nobody's taken it away from me. I try to look like the normal rock star. I try to do this. I try to do that. By that time, I'd worked out what was working for me. I'm now myself. I'm now authentically myself. And it's working. This is finally working. All these things that I thought were going to go against me are actually the reasons why people love me. People love the fact that I'm a shaven-headed, skinny little black girl raging around the stage, screaming her head off into a microphone. The executives and the record company bosses, you know, the old white guys, they just want a pretty blonde girl singing in a short skirt. But the actual people loved it. By that time, I was 26 years old, so I was like a grown-ass woman, you know. I was grown. I looked a lot younger, but I was grown, and I was very much in control by the time I signed a record deal. As a band, as a performer, Skunk and Nancy, you I mean, so ahead of the time and so fearless, and the industry, especially like you said there, at the top is lots of stuffy white men. Yeah. So how how do you walk into that situation and just fuck things up, essentially? I think we have a mentality of you come to us, we don't come to you. Yes. Like, for instance, we 
were really bad at making demos. You know, we didn't know how to produce ourselves. And we thought, well, we're not going to send these to anyone. We just had this mentality of like, if you like the band, come and see us live. Because then we knew that they were coming into our core and we would wow them and we'd do an amazing... We, were, we knew we were a fantastic live band, but we hadn't really mastered how to record ourselves. That was something that kind of developed over a space of time. And I would say, actually, we're still better as a live band than we are on record, to be honest. You know, it's a hard truth to face, but after 30 years, I recognise that now. And that was it. It was about trying to do things differently. So not falling into the trap of feeling like we had to do what everybody else is doing in order to get noticed because that wasn't going to work for us. We weren't going to have record companies walk up to us and say, yeah, I want to sign you, unless we, we controlled the situation. Recording the first album, we literally just said to the record company, we're going to record it and you're going to put it out and you have no input in terms of what's on the record at all. Like, you have no input. And they really balked at that, but that was the band that they signed. We were kind of scared and arrogant with it, and that actually worked really well for us. How would that work now, if you were in a new band now? People are just out there creating their own thing and really controlling their own dialogue, you know, especially queer artists and musicians and performers. I think that we're just doing something that's really against the grain. I think you've always got, you know, your big pop artists that are just going to do what the big pop artists do. But I think the industry is more and more leaning towards the queer, gay, black artists that are doing really radical things and doing amazing things with fashion and art and mixing them all up and coming up with, with lots of stuff. I think we're really influencing everybody now. And you just see it in Fashion Week, you see it in TV programmes, you see it in all over the place what people are going crazy about. So I think they're slowly moving towards us or... You could say in some ways just taking the best out of us and then regurgitating yeah. for them. Come in and have a cultural sponge. Come on, suck it all up. Yeah. But, hey. but yeah, at the same time, it feels like there's two distinct worlds. There's the mainstream media, the mainstream radio, and I have a radio show and a big radio station, so I'm very much aware of what the mainstream like and what the mainstream want and the safeness of that world. But then you go into the world of streaming and it's completely different. Everyone's swearing and doing what they want and saying what they want and being really sexual in the way that they want to be sexual and and just being completely free. And so I feel you've got this underground and this overground running along at the same time. And I feel that the underground is way bigger. It's just so much stuff to consume. Whereas the overground, you know, the people that are just going to play Justin Bieber forever and a day, you know, I feel like they're kind of dying out a bit. I don't think kids listen to that kind of mainstream radio in that way. I do think young kids, especially young girls, are so fascinated by queer culture, especially at the moment. It feels like it's the new subculture. It's like the new emo. Yeah, it's the new mainstream. (laughs) I mean, Drag Race is the biggest show on the planet. I want to take you back to the 90s music scene, which still for me was my discovery of my identity and who I was through artists like Björk and Hull and you. And it just felt so, so charged. It was so charged and passionate. But I do think when we look back, we look at Britpop, Yawn, and we look at the musical genius of Liam Gallagher, not, (laughs) 
And there's a real frustration for me with that. So how do you feel about it? Do you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I'm sick and tired of hearing about Britpop as if it was the only thing that was going on. I think that if you look at the 90s and you look at the music that's influenced in the biggest way since, 100% is drum and bass. I mean, you can draw a line from Goldie all the way to Stormzy, you know, and in the way you hit Bashment, you'll hit all these different kind of musical genres. The way that music has affected music that the kids are into now, you know, so much reggae influences in the music now, so much tropical house is kind of like a mix between reggae and Latin and all this kind of stuff, you know, and I think that's been way more influential and is way more pop and way more now and way more resonant than Britpop with its tired old, same four chords, same four white boys, talking about drinking beer or whatever. You know, black, queer, gay, all our stories don't get told. What always gets told is the Britpop story. And that is an important story. It happened. But it was by far not the only thing that was happening. That's what the establishment likes to do. When it goes back in time, it likes to repaint things and reorder things in terms of importance. And Britpop was a thing that happened for two or three, four years. But house music and drum and bass and all those things which are actually in popular culture now. That's been building since the 70s, 80s, you know, rap culture, massive. And it's just this idea that everything gets whitewashed. So if I don't tell my story, no one's going to do it for me. If you think about modern culture, rock is probably the least influential. You're so right. I read about your experience with a lot of white male journalists back in the 90s and and how they would start their interview with a list of labels. How do you walk into that situation and and come out sane? Because, I don't know, there's just the punk child in me that when someone that's coming for me, I will instantly be very loud and aggressive. I can't quite deal with that level of bullshit. For me, the way I always dealt with it was incredibly simplistic. As I said before, it's taken me a long time to get to this place of happiness. I'm fronting a rock band. I'm really happy. People are loving it. We're selling millions of records, right? And then someone's going to walk in with their, like, as you said, the label, six foot five, Amazonian, black, shaven-headed, lesbian, lead singer of Skunk and Nancy. All those adjectives that were describing me before anyone got to actually see what I was really like. And I would be like, do you know what's not my problem? It's really not my problem. And that kind of simplistic thing of like, I'm really happy, so I'm not going to take on all of your weight and all of your isms and schisms and your racism, your homophobia, transphobia, all of that stuff that you're throwing at me, right? That is not my issue. It's your issue. And if I take on your issues, I'm just going to be weighed down by your issues. So I was walked into a situation like, if you treat me well, I'm going to treat you well. But if you're not going to treat me well, then you're going to get it, you know, um, and you're not going to get a good interview. And I just had a bit of a reputation of like, just don't fuck with me. I'm quite gentle and I'm quite quiet and all those kind of things. But it's a good thing to kind of overcome that and just be a bit narky sometimes. That was my simplistic way of dealing with it. Um, And also just not prejudging a situation, not presuming that everybody's going to be like that. Because a lot of people are really cool. One thing I've seen time and time again, and it's not changed, it's still in modern day, this narrative of powerful black women being described as angry. How can we get away from that? 
It's just a boring stereotype about black women. We're angry, but we'll fuck you, but we're angry, but we'll fuck you, but we're angry, but we'll fuck you. You know, it's just a long, slow process, you know. It's like gay white men are always limp-wristed or something. Or they're always going to try and have sex with your boyfriend. Yeah, and it's just one of those cliches and stereotypes. I mean, all I can do is be myself and be my authentic self. I think we can spend a lot of time and energy trying to change people who don't want to be changed. And I think that it's exhausting and it's not our job. And I think that our job is to live our lives and be the people that we we'll want to be. I couldn't have said it better. I'm going to switch it up a little bit now. So through your career, you've forged amazing friendships with some unbelievable people. Brilliance finds brilliance. Bowie, Nelson Mandela, Casual, McQueen. Is there a kind of baton of genius that gets passed on? Here you go, Skin, have that. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't describe myself in any kind of geniusstic ways. But I think all of those people that you just mentioned, the running theme that they have is they have a empathy for the authentic. And the thing I loved about McQueen was that he was always Denise Denboy, you know, and he didn't really care for all the over-the-top nonsense. All he really cared about is our having fun and making clothes, you know what I mean? And he didn't really care for all the snooty side of fashion. He hated all of that. And it's the same with Bowie, you know? He was such an icon, but when you sit down and chat to him, he's just a very interesting guy. Mm. He was one of the first people that were really standing up to MTV in terms of standing up for black people at MTV and stuff like that, because he saw so much incredible art coming from black culture. And I think that that's a different mentality. And it's very much about seeing art not just in terms of high-class white stuff, you know, seeing art in terms of Brixton or walking into East End, Hoxton in those early days when it was just gay club after gay club. Yeah. That's where genius comes out of. It doesn't come out of Vogue magazine all the time. I think you need a level of hardship. I think hardship spurs you on in life to create and to and to really create because your life fucking depends on it rather than what someone's passed down and there's certain things like and I truly believe this that you cannot be taught you know you might be able to play the piano but are you going to be able to be an artist also just being open to culture and not just seeing culture and art as just being a white high-class thing and being snooty about it. So true. So this is a biggie, but Skin's Perfect World, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Do you know, it doesn't feel that much different from the one that we're in, you know? I don't want to live in a perfect world. I want to live in a diverse world full of all kinds of different people because that's fun. I don't want to live in a, a world that's just me, you know, and just people like me. What are we going to fight against? <laughs> Getting angry and fighting against things is so much amazing, incredible art has come out of that. I don't know if I would change a lot. I would just keep striving towards people just having a much more open and equal existence, like all people. I mean, I think that if you look at the world that the right-wingers would like to live in, if they actually got to live in that world, I think they'd fucking hate it. You know, after a few years, you'd be like, God, look what we've created. Yeah. <laughs> look what we did to ourselves. This is awful. And in the end, you know, after a generation, like what happened in South Africa, you'd see all their kids would be like, well, we want to do what the black kids are doing because that's cool. You know, we want to live in this white perfect world. I was reading a lot about punk back in the 1980s in Africa, in all different countries up and down the African continent. Mm. And that was the thing that they thought about the most, that they were like, we were bored. 
Everything we did was white and everything we were around us was white and there was nothing to do. And all the interesting stuff was happening in black culture and we wanted that. So I think it's just be careful what you want for. You know, when I think of these right wingers and I listen to the stuff they say, it's like, you might think it's great. The next generation are going to do the absolute opposite of everything you believe in is going to be gone. Always, always. Can we talk about the dark? <laughs> we can talk about the duck, absolutely. I mean, I do think that, you know, you look at the mass Singer and there is definitely something in the surreal that's happening at the moment. It's the world's getting <laughs> greyer, bleaker, scarier. Let's make skin dress up as a duck. It makes perfect sense to me. Do you know, that's exactly why I did it. Because if you're going to do something like that, there is no cool way to do the mass Singer. It's mainstream television it's naffers houses and that's the fun in it. And if you don't just go with it and just be silly and just do it, then don't do it. So I went for the most ridiculous one because I thought in every photo that duck is going to stand out. And no one, unless they know my voice, is ever going to think I would do something as ridiculous as that. <laughs> and that's what appealed to me. <laughs> I have to be honest, it's probably the worst amount of singing I've ever done in my whole life. <laughs> it was so hard to sing in that thing. Blame the dark. It was really fun. And the thing is, it wasn't that much fun, but I did it because I think in England, people have this idea of me of being like super serious, aggressive, political, lesbian, feminist. Blah, blah, blah. And I just did it to just change people's opinions. Just do something silly. Which is political and it's very self. It's you saying... Fuck you, I am not what you want me to be. And I never really think I've ever been that cool. I'm really fascinated by the idea of what people think is cool in England. And and I think it's a real hang-up that a lot of people have that they need to get rid of. Because, you know, is drag race cool? Yes, it is to a certain audience. Other people think it's ridiculous because it's so over the top and all the outfits. I mean, what does cool mean anymore? So I did it because I just thought... It'll just be shocking. It'll be a laugh. And not even my mum guessed it. Wow. I want to um, put something to you. We do this with every guest. I want to talk to you about a book that has informed your life. I was thinking about this. And I actually have to go back to a book I read when I was like 16. And it's actually a really well-known book. It's The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. And I read that at 16 when I was in an abusive relationship. And I would say that that book was the first book like that I've ever read. It's quite shocking to read, more shocking than the film, actually. And it was my first stepping stone to get out of that relationship because I was like, God, my situation is nowhere near as bad as hers. And she got out of it. And so it really affected me that. And I had a really good friend called Susan Okukena, who's sadly no longer with us. And she would just say to me, like, you don't have to just put up with him, you know, just like, put up with it. And so that book really opened my eyes to the fact of, like, you need to change, otherwise you're going to be someone who's just going to be crushed and will never get to shine and will never get to be the person they want to be. And I tell you a little side story, actually. I've actually never told this story before. But years later, when I was a big rock star, Alice Walker came to England to do a series of talks. And I had a friend of a friend that said, oh, do you want to come and hang out? And I was like, yes. So I went and hung out with Alice Walker. And it was the first time in any time in my life I absolutely just was like, uh, 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 
I was so embarrassing. And we hung out and it was a group of us. And then the next day they were saying, oh, you know, we're going to play in Oxford. Why don't you get the train and come and listen to the talk in Oxford? And I was like, yeah, I'll get to hang out with Alice Water again for another evening. And so I came, I went to Oxford and we were all hanging out and we were walking towards the university, Oxford University and chatting, whatever. And there was this one woman in her group who was giving me the evil eye. She caught up with me and she goes, I sort of let you know, you know, Alice Walker, she's, she's my girlfriend, okay? She's my girlfriend. <laughs> and I remember thinking, number one, she's old enough to be my mother. Yeah. And number two, there's me thinking I'm hanging out with Alice Walker because she's this great intellectual and blah, 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 blah. And these people are like, oh, you know, she's just a hot rock singer that just wants to shag Alice Walker. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the disrespect, I was so embarrassed. Did you get on that train straight back from Oxford? I wanted to, but, and I was like, is that coming from Alice? Is she telling everyone I'm trying to shag her? And it hadn't occurred to me. Hadn't occurred to me. Wow. But I was just like, lesbian, sometimes you're just like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to shout at Alice Walker. Alice Walker's amazing. I want to be around her and listen to her talk. That's it. I'm not trying to get in her knickers. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Because I never get overwhelmed or I never get tongue-tied when I meet heroes. I hope not. But I met Armistead Maupin a few years ago. Oh, wow. I swear to God, I did everything but follow through. I was like a dribbling mess. I know. That's, I couldn't believe it of myself. I had no idea I was going to feel like that. And I think that the resonance of what that book meant to me was in my body. And by that point, I toured with Barry and U2 and all these huge famous people and sung with Pavarotti and whatever. And I thought that, yeah, you know, whatever. And I think it was just in my body, that 15-year-old person that came back and read that book was like, oh my God, she's right there, it's Alice Walker. How about a trip that's changed your life? My first trip to Jamaica was the first time I'd been in a hot country, like properly hot, where the place smells different. That mm. plane door opens and you're like, what is this? Right. And I was like 10. I remember this was so exciting. One of my relatives was in the town and was my granddad was quite a wealthy guy that owned a bunch of stuff in town. And my grandma was the complete opposite. She was a little country girl that had a house on top of a hill and she did all her cooking outside. But everything was so new to me. And I remember feeling like I'm going to try and go to as many countries as I possibly can. Like that travel bug of like, I've got to experience so many different things. This was so exciting to me. And there were good things and bad things that happened. I was very young. I de I definitely a, a few creepy situations happened that I had to get myself out of. And then at the same time, I realised that I have two Jamaican parents, but I'm not Jamaican. I'm English. So I remember having this massive identity crisis of like, this is not my country. This is the country of my parents. They're Jamaican. I'm not Jamaican, I'm English because I can't understand a word anyone is saying to me. Because Jamaican Patois was not like English Patois. It was almost like a different language. I caught every 10th word. So there was that kind of sense of going back to the UK and being like, okay, if I'm not Jamaican, who am I? Because I thought I was Jamaican. Have you, since that trip, continued to go back to Jamaica? Does it feel exactly the same? I went to Jamaica up until I was 18. And then when I discovered and started to understand stuff about my sexuality, I didn't feel safe there, right. if I'm going to be honest. I did not feel safe in Jamaica at all. And I, you know, had a lot of men aggressively on me and I didn't know how to cope with that because I was a very shy 
little child. I went back when I was 14 and I was very underdeveloped, shy, 14-year-old, and I just had all these guys on me. And I didn't feel safe and I didn't like it. I liked it when I was a child. I did not like it when I started to grow up. And, you know, Jamaica's an incredibly homophobic place. I hate to say it. And I know I have some gay friends that are there right now. Um, actually, you might know a sipping tea. Yes. And uh, she's in Jamaica right now. Wow. And I have some other friends that have been there. And I know there's pockets of gayness, big, huge pockets of gayness. And there always has been. Mm. And there's also a certain amount of toleration. And it always has been, especially in the church. But, you know, I think at the same time, things could turn really quickly and you could be in a difficult situation. So I actually have been trying to get back for the last three years because my best friend's mum has moved back there and I want to go visit. And I knew that would be a safe place to be back because she's like the centre of the community. And I want to go back and I want to go back as an adult and see what it's like. I'm desperate to go back, actually. Um, I would love to go back. It's a place I absolutely love to go but being out of control on that level when you're really out of control feels terrifying right and it's a shame that we have to be in that place yeah I mean I think you have to be aware of what's going on your peripheral vision is the thing that saves your life you know um, and that saved my life on a few occasions you know seeing the trouble coming in the corner of my eye before it hits me I mean being white I think you'll have a different experience because you're always seen as a tourist you yeah. know and maybe they won't trouble you as much but I think being black and having so much family there and being out, you know, written a book about it, being very out, everybody knows I'm gay. I'm not sure how that will go. But I'm going to go and be there with my friend's mum and her, my best friend. I, I think I'll live it. There'll be things that'll be bad about it. It's like England, isn't it? Pockets of badness, yeah. pockets of goodness. Right. You have to find your people. Yeah, I totally agree. Has there been a human that's made you who you are? I think there's been a lot of stuff that I've had to work out myself, but if I think there's one person that's really affected me, I would say it's my manager, Lee Johnson. I met her when I first decided that I wanted to be a singer, when I'd left my interior design job. And she was the first person to say, yes, you can be a singer. And yes, I see you as a lead singer of a rock band. And that changed everything. Having somebody else along that journey with you, with that same belief in you, and they could see it. And it wasn't just you having to be on your own fighting and imagining it. But, you know, the thing that is important about her is that she's very, very moral. And so she would always do things in the right way and would never do something in a way that's going to hurt or crush anyone else. Whereas other managers, they don't give a shit. You know, they just want to make the money. They don't really care what happens to the artist. So I was lucky to find someone that was not morally corrupt and was a really good person and could see a black girl leading a rock band and thought that would be great and did everything in her power to make that happen. Wow. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> right? Still my manager to this day. So, you know. If you could send my thanks to her, that would be great. Thank <laughs> I you. Will do that. And, you know, female manager as well. So she was fighting her yeah, own battles. Yeah. How about a love that's taught you the biggest lesson? I would say my first love. I think the first love is probably the only time in your life where you go in that deep where you just jump off the cliff into the sea and you think you're going to swim. So true. And I think that you just learn a whole lot of lessons. Like the biggest lesson I learned is that I actually, in that first up, you think it's going to last forever. I honestly thought that was it forever. I had that level of belief. And you cannot put everything into another person in that way. 
And it was a harsh lesson that I learned. And it was a really good lesson I learned. Because after that, I've fallen in love in ways that I will survive it. I'm not going to be as crushed as I was crushed that first time. Mm. Yeah, it was devastating, that first relationship. And I had a really horrible first relationship, um, the love relationship, not the abusive guy. Mm. I mean, the woman, she was mentally abusive. But when you fall in love in that first way and you just think that this is fucking heaven and this is it and this is my partner for the rest of my life and then it doesn't happen and it ends and you literally have nowhere to go because you didn't save anything back. It's crushing. And you don't know how to get back to just breathing and eating and living because it's so unbelievably crushing. And also, you know, I wrote hedonism about that. So, you know, that's kind of been a good thing that came out of it. I learned how yeah, to write. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Again. You know, you know, give me a career. I think also, I don't know how you feel about this, but as queer kids, we almost miss a decade. We miss when all the kids are in the playground exploring that innocent flirtation. We get thrust into it. So we've internalised what romance is, what relationships are. I was the same as you. I remember when I broke up with my first boyfriend, I couldn't listen to music for about a year after because it just triggered all this emotion that I wasn't equipped for. Wow. I mean, I think what you just said is absolutely amazing. I've never heard that before. And it's so true about you're 10 years later than everybody else. That's almost brought tears to my eyes in a sad way of like, oh my God, yeah. All of my first sexual encounters and my first love encounters were ruined and spoiled by number one, the society that we were living in because they were all so secret and underhand and everything I did was perceived as being bad by society. But then, yeah, you miss that being 14 and falling in love with your first boyfriend or girlfriend for two weeks, you know. And that's, yeah, that's just me. I'm going to write a song about that. That's me really sad. There you go. 10%. I want 10%. (laughs) Oh, honey, I'll give you 50. I'm jealous. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that there's, to end that part of what I was saying, the good side of it is that made me so much stronger. And that built me up. I survived it. It took about four years. But I actually got through it and I survived it. And then I had that perspective to move on for. Like, I don't think any of my relationships would have been... I mean, I had a couple of fucking shit ones. But um, I've never been to that level of depth before because I became a survivor of it after that. Amazing. So uh, we're going to wrap this up with a track that's... We're not going to (laughs) play it. We're just going to ask you. And then then people can go off and just play it if they want. But a track that soundtracks your life. I am going to go back to a Stevie Wonder song, Living for the City. And the reason is I heard that from before I was born, almost. I heard that in the womb. (laughs) My parents have songs in the key of life. You know, it was a record that I grew up with. And as a consequence, when you know a record, it's so close to you, you don't really listen to it. You know, you just know it. It's just there. And... I love that record. I love the whole record. And when I became a teenager and I started singing, I went back to that record because it was so familiar. And I couldn't sing along with it because Steve Wonder's male voice too low and I'm a soprano. So I sang harmony. So, a boy is born in Hutter, Mississippi. A boy is born in Hutter, Mississippi. That's where I'd sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, yeah. I can sing harmony to that whole double album. Wow. <laughs> and so that record taught me how to sing harmony and now I'm really fucking good at it. Yeah. That was when I was like 18 and I started to sing. And then later on, as a songwriter, I went back to it lyrically. And just the story that's being told there was also my story of like leaving home and going to another place and having to dodge all the dodgy people. And lyrically, I just thought, what an amazing song. And then you had that breakdown in the middle. How many songs did that? 
So it's a song that just keeps coming back to me and re-educates me every time at various parts of my life. I could talk to you all day. This has been honestly such a dream oh, of mine. Thank you. I could talk to you all day. I've wanted to get you in my bedroom forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one to tick off the bucket list. Bloody hell, what an absolute legend. I mean, they say you should never meet your heroes, but Skin totally squashed that theory. For more positive, life-changing stories of inspiration, make sure you hit subscribe. And next time, I'll be delving into the mind of Bimini Bon Boulash. Society needs these places that they can put you so that they can feel, I'm not intimidated because that's what that is. Until next time, bye.